Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Salas, and with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend, who is a trailblazing badass if ever there were, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> Hi, Louise. How are you? I'm good. How are you, love? You know, getting ready for um, March and Women's Month and all kinds of great things. So, you know, yeah. That's great. That's great. You know. Birds are singing, grass is growing. Yeah, yeah. Are you still are you still snowing up there? Um, uh, still have snow on the ground, but not snowing. So, That's good. You know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I hope those platypuses are okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, starting in 1981, we had Women's History Week, and by 1987, we had Women's History Month. And in honor of that, I'd like to acknowledge some badass women. You may or may not know. And if you don't, you should. Ready? Ready. All right. So Marie Owens. In 1888, she became the first female police officer. And Sarah Breadlove, around the turn of the century, Sarah not only became the first self-made millionaire, woman self-made millionaire, she was the first black woman to become a self-made millionaire. And Opa Mae Johnson, she deserves a Great big hoorah. In 1918, she became the first female U.S. Marine. And crazy thing, she did it at a ripe young age of 40 years. Wow. I know. I know. Talk about badass, right? And then Valentina Tereshkova. Yeah, that was an easy one for me. In 1963, she was a Russian cosmonaut who became the first woman to orbit the Earth. Here's another tough one. Junko Tebe, I believe is the right way to say her name, at all of five feet. And 92 pounds, in 1975, Junko became the first woman to reach the peak of Mount Everest. Whoa. I know, I know. Like five foot. Could you imagine how many steps she actually had to take with those short little legs? Uh, (laughs) And then Nancy Lieberman. Not only did she receive the silver medal in 1976 Olympic Games, but in 2009, she was actually the first woman to be named head coach of any NBA-affiliated teams. That's amazing. I know that we're still saying this, and it's, yeah, it's 2009. Um, And last but not least, this is a great one. It's Monet Davis. In 2014, at the ripe age of 13 years, Monet became the first female pitcher to pitch a winning shutout game at Little League World Series. That's incredible. I know. So she said at 13, who knows where she's going. And that was in uh, 2014. So pretty impressive. And some like big shoes to fill, huh? Yeah. And then in 2021, Kamala Harris became our first woman vice president of the United States. I know. I know. That's amazing. I'm adding my own facts. I'm adding my own facts, Louise. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that was great. So we should just keep continuing this list of badass women who are out to change the world. And just bring on today's designated drinker, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. I know. She's the founder and director of Women's Global Empowerment Fund. It's an international nonprofit working with women and families. So please welcome, please, please welcome Karen Sugar to the show. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hi, Karen. Hey, ladies. Such a fun day to be here. Thank you for having me. And yeah, International Women's Day is coming up on Monday and it's Women's History Month, so... It is a good time to be a woman, damn it. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's the truth, finally. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Big breath of fresh air, everybody. Yep. Let's just jump right into this episode, shall we? Um, 
please, Karen, will you tell us, I want to get to the mission of Women's Global Empowerment Fund, absolutely, but can you please share with our listeners your journey to actually getting there? I mean, getting to such a lofty mission of like lifting this organization um, off the ground. I mean, you started from like zero. How did you do that? I started from zero. I mean, you built it from the ground up, I should say. I'm sorry. Like, it's amazing. You know, kind of moment in grad school where I had this, uh, you know, idea that I could start an international nonprofit that focused on microfinance and economic activity and social programs for women. And, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense. It was, I say this and I, and it, I say this quite often. It was a moment of brilliance or insanity, right? Uh, <laughs> there were a lot of flaws in my plan that have come back to definitely bite me in the ass a few times. I think that my whole life leading up to that moment, though, had always been focused on women, families, and poverty issues, and um, women's rights and gender justice. And and so it wasn't that crazy that I would create a nonprofit focused on that. There were other crazy components of it, right? Um, I worked in a homeless shelter for several years in Atlanta, where I learned so much about tenacity and courage and how hard it is to be poor and marginalized in the United States and, and, and elsewhere. But my focus at that point was in the United States. I learned so much about oppression and history. Um, and I learned a lot about myself. Um, and then, you know, I worked in the, uh, um, uh, public uh, community organizing around reproductive health care. So I've always been committed to these issues. I've always worked within the political system, outside of the political system. I always have signs and tabling and protest materials in my trunk of my car ready to go. Um, and <laughs> I can actually see you just like jumping out of your car. It's like- so true. And my <laughs> will tell you that we'll be driving, you know, when they were, you know, still living at home, we would be driving in this area of Denver that, you know, every Saturday and once in a while they, they would be uh, um, anti fur protests in front of a furrier, you know, very fancy shop. And I'd be like, oh my God, let's go. And, you know, we would get out and go do that, like quite often. Um, You know, I'm a firm believer in social movements. I know that the only way to really create change and create the future that we want, that, that, that human beings deserve, that's based on dignity and equality and justice, is if we push that agenda, you know, we have to push the boundaries. We have to educate and out and do outreach. And a lot of times it's risky. And, you know, I think Americans like to be comfortable and I'm, I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and I think everybody should be uncomfortable at least once a day. And if you're not, I think you're not paying attention. Right. Or, or yeah, I, I, I just, um, I feel like there's a lot of things that we should be focused on that are hard, but worth it. Yeah, and absolutely. So I went back to graduate school and I really wanted to focus on environmental politics and the world had really cracked open. You know, this was like the early 2000s or, the, you know, like 2005. And I, I, you know, I was living in this globalized world that I didn't totally get because I didn't grow up, you know, I was older. Um, and, but I got pulled back into gender and development and I was just sitting in a class one day and watching a really 
kind of boring film and actually, you know, it's kind of a boring class. <laughs> on this Women's Savings Association in India and called Seva. And they're very successful and, and you can, you know, Google them. Um, and they do great work. And, and I was so compelled by the um, concept of microfinance and giving small loans and capital to women that didn't have collateral or didn't have to get their husband's approval or, you know, um, and that's crazy to even think that's still, I mean, that's a large portion of the world. I mean, yeah, it's and, crazy. And oftentimes it still exists, although it's not legal, but, but most, most countries don't, you know, have made those kinds of things illegal, but that doesn't mean that it translates all the way down to the grassroots level. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really compelled by this concept when you bundle it with social capital building programs, like literacy, like leadership development, health, things like that. And, you know, one of the things I think that was um, kind of sad or demoralizing working in a shelter for so long, and, and then I've actually worked in a couple of them, was that you really set people up for failure continually, right? And, um, you know, we would house the shelter in Atlanta focused on newborn babies and their families. And, you know, we get them healthy and we get them services and we, we'd enroll their kids in schools or daycares and we, and we get them all kinds of benefits. And then we'd wait for their section eight housing voucher. And then it would come in and it would be in a horrible, you know, apartment complex that didn't have access to grocery stores. That was basically in a food desert that was far away from it. You know, and so we're setting we're setting this young family up for failure. Like it, it's just, and it's sad. And even today, we're talking about a living wage. You know, we need to pay people a living wage. Um, you can't expect people to survive on seven twenty five an hour. You know, and then and then also, you know, berate them for having you know food stamps and 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 other social services. It's like you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't and. Um, so it was that kind of thing that I, I, I found microfinance. I was like, you know, this, this could be kind of an answer. Like it's different, you know? And so I became super passionate about it. I spent my whole graduate school time just focusing on microfinance. I studied in Paraguay for a while. I looked at best practices around the world. Everyone thought I was a nut. I lost friends over it. I think my kids were like, can't you just sell real estate like other moms? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and finally, when my da youngest daughter turned 16, I was like, I'm going to Uganda because um, she could drive herself to school. Well, you know, so, self-sufficient. That's good. Yeah. You kind of like, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the thing for me is how did I get to Uganda? And I think that was kind of where I had to fly by the seat of my pants. I couldn't really overanalyze the situation. I had to really go with my gut. And I had to be really brave. Um, I had never been to Africa. That's crazy. I, it's crazy. No, it's nuts. And I just, so at what point did you just say, you know where it's going to be? It's in all the world. Yeah, I'm going to, I, I'm going to go to Gulu, Uganda. That was coming out of this long, brutal conflict that I had never heard of Gulu, Uganda. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I was introduced, you know, so I created the organization, I created the mission, I created the model and, and my last piece of it was, where was I going to go? 
And for me, the criteria was where on the planet did women have the most critical need for empowerment, social and economic empowerment. And I was introduced to somebody from Northern Uganda who gave me a very good education on what on his country, on the conflict in the Northern region. I read all kinds of UN reports and I was like, okay, that's it. That's where they have the most critical need at this time. It didn't matter that I'd never been there, that I didn't speak any languages, that it was very far away, that it was still kind of, you know, vulnerable and dangerous in some yeah. respect. Well, not even to think, I mean, that's, those are, I mean, those are major things, but do you even think like your own health, like how many shots did you get? I mean, like to think about this is just how you made this decision in from, uh, for, I mean, it, obviously from a very educated and, and thoughtful way, but I mean, just like, yes, it's yes. crazy that that's where you chose. It's just, it's just baffling. I think that for me, what I learned working in the shelter in Atlanta, which moving to the South when you had never been to the South is oh, like absolutely. a foreign country. So I'm not like that I said that, but it really was for me growing up on the West Coast and the Western part of the United States. It was like, wait, what? Sometimes I found myself like, can you slow down? Because I know you're speaking English, but I have no idea. That's what you hilarious. Um, you know, I mean, I was called yep. a Yankee. I mean, I was just I like, got that what? a lot. I got that, that a lot um, when I lived in the South. My husband is also from L.A. Um, so we went, oh, he grew up in L.A. Actually from Long yeah. Island, like Gina, but he grew up in L.A. And we went into restaurants and he would look at me and he, he'd go, what did, what did they just say? I have no idea what she just said. It was kind of funny. I know, I know. Um, and what I, you know, I learned so much, but the most important lesson I learned, oh my God, is that as women, we are all connected and we all have many of the same experiences as we walk yeah. the planet as, as women. And, it, and they may look a little bit different. Our socioeconomic status is going to look different. Um, our resources might be different, but we experience the same kind of issues, e even things like raising healthy families, you know, having access to full reproductive health care. That's you know, scary that we're saying that that is an issue that unfortunately many of our women oh, in the United States are facing, especially exactly. those who, sexual harassment. Yeah. oh yeah. I mean, we're talking about sexual harassment yeah. today, yeah. right? Which, uh, you know, gender-based violence, it, it, it's well hidden here, but it is here, you know, it's yeah. global, it's global. And not yeah. being taken seriously, yeah. global. And I realized at that time, I think it gave me the courage to be like, I can go wherever the need is the greatest. Like, it's okay. Because I feel like That's I have crazy. something to offer. That's these awesome. Women. I mean, it's very inspiring, but um, it's equally crazy, which is great. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah, looking back, you know, I, I feel like, wow. But um, best decision I ever made because it's a beautiful country. I'm inspired every day. I feel like pinch me. I'm a very lucky person to be working in um, uh, such an unusual environment that's challenging me as a human being and as a woman. But I also get to work with all these amazing women. I mean, you know, it. <sighs> It's really hard to understand, like, most of our clients don't have running water, you know, don't have electricity, you know, their lives, they collect water for a couple of hours a day, you know, um, and, and they, but we give them this, you know, the trainings and the support and 
um, the belief and the hope and they create a business model and you can't believe the businesses that have come up. I mean, everything from, you know, the beauty shop to the, the restaurant and other food services to small hotels, you know, in their, in their homes or, I mean, you know, construction and wine and beer making craft <laughs> cocktails, maybe, um, yeah, ginger beer and all kinds of things. Um, and it's, and a lot of farming and agro, we, it, you know, our, our agriculture loan program, we've been able to create an entire local food economy there, which has had a really major effect on food security. That's what I was going to ask you about, because when we spoke a couple of days ago, you mentioned mm-hmm. the fact about all the farming that, that yeah. created women become as a business creating farms and how it is in areas, the food insecurity is disappearing because it's a sustainability, right? That's being injected into this area where these women are, are, are have their own businesses. Right. And then, then that is sold or provided to within their local area. That's that's right. Not only does it need like their families, their communities, the local markets, but then they export it to other regions of Uganda and either, and even into South Sudan and Kenya. So we have like our women farmers, which we started out with like small to medium scale women farmers. And then it grew into medium to large scale women farmers. And then we had women that in our program that decided to be the suppliers. And then we had women that decided to be the distributors. So talk about badass women. I mean, I have literally sat in meetings with women who have it so down and organized and are so successful. I mean, it really is. You know, I didn't really understand the entrepreneurial spirit that human beings have, even though I had it. I hadn't I hadn't really experienced it in a really big way and going there and seeing women with all these ideas and hopes and dreams. And part of our program that makes us unique is that we don't tell women what businesses to start. We don't say, and then we'll sell your product for you or we'll help, you know, you have to do this project. It's like they come to us with what they're interested in and what their hopes and dreams are and what they're, what they know they're good at. And then we help them develop that business plan. And it is truly inspiring to see that whole process happen. That And, and let, let's, um, if I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong, all of these women that you're working with, they're all locals, right? All locals. From the people who are in your leadership to the, in the organization that are on the ground, correct? Yeah. I mean, all of our staff there are all Ugandan, you know, young, educated Uganda. You know, one of the things in many major cities in uh, parts of Africa are, you know, young people are staying in their countries. They want to give back to their countries. They and, and there's many, many wonderful universities in countries all over Africa. But when they get out, there's not a lot of jobs. And, you know, one of the one of the philosophies of the organization is I didn't want to go in and just be like a white Western organization on the ground. Another one. Right. I wanted to partner with a Ugandan based organization. And I wanted to make sure that all of our staff, like everyone we hire is Ugandan. I mean, it's smart. Right. They speak the language. It's their country. Like 
it's their culture, it's their neighbors, it's their family. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, who are you to say? I and, mean, I don't mean that rudely, but I mean, coming in from another, the, the yeah. value system is different. I mean, there, to your point, there's a lot of connectivity and there's a lot of crossover, obviously, but when you get into that nuanced space, there's just difference in culture. And I applaud you for seeing that, that, you know, and right. that, that's also a part of just knowing what you don't know, right? And, and how much you learn from that. Right. Totally. Totally. I mean, I went in with a, a whole set of, well, not really. I went in with very little expectation or even understanding, but you know, uh, some of it was wrong. I mean, some of the things I thought I was going to do, or I thought would be really important, really weren't. And my, you know, landing there, I remember looking out the plane going, Oh, oh no, what have I done? Um, it was just really like a moment of like, what, what am I doing landing by myself? I mean, it was so nuts. Um, and, and my program director who I'd never Skyped with, we, we sent photos of each other, but there was not Skype in, in oh, yeah, 2007. Not, yeah. Right. So we just, you know, we spoke on the phone and I, I had seen some photos and stuff, but you know, he was there to pick me up and there were a lot of guns and a lot of safety measures and government, military everywhere because it was still so fragile. And he oh was goodness. an hour late to get me. And I was just like, I was almost getting in the car with a stranger who said he would drop oh me at my hotel because they make you go out of the, the airport. You know, there's you can't wait in the lounge or like a little waiting area. And in my head, I could hear my mom be like, are you crazy? You're getting in. No, are you nuts? And and I was just like, oh my god, I don't know what to do. My phone wasn't working. It was my first time there. I mean, I did not know what I was doing. And I mean, thank goodness I'm walking with this man and Bukenya, my program director, who I love more than anything, uh, runs up and and is like grabs me. I mean, uh, you know, there's so many of those stories where like it almost went awry. <laughs> <laughs> You also shared um, a story, and this kind of goes back and touches back on the on the when you were talking about the fact that really starting from the ground up and starting with literacy and and working that into really at those early early stages of growth and where these women are coming in. Will you please share that that story with Gina and our listeners? Because this is this is amazing. I, I think I know the story you're talking about. There's been a couple, but a couple of years ago, I was actually traveling with. Um, one of my friends who's a journalist and my professor whose class I was in when I decided to do this. So I continually blame her. Um, and she finally was able to come with me and <clears throat> I wanted to go see, um, you know, I go to many villages and districts when I'm there, my whole goal is just to listen and find out what's working, what, what the excitement is, what needs are, you know, what successes are. And, um, uh, we went to this village and there was a literacy class going on, which I wanted to go see. There were probably like 40, 50 women sitting under this huge jackfruit tree. Um, you know, it's incredibly hot. And, um, and next to this tree, so there's all these women and there's me, the visitors, our guests, and, you know, some of my staff. And um, they got out a little bench for me to sit on, which is really sweet. And there was a little chalkboard by the um, tree and some chalk. And so we went around and I said, okay, tell me like, what is the, the, the best part of women's global for you? Like what, what have you learned? What experiences have you had? And then what are your challenges still? Those, that was kind of my questions. And so at, people really love to share and it's, and it's lovely. And this, and this woman stood up and 
she was probably like 30. Um, and she said, uh, well, I'm in, I learned how to write my name. And you know, it's one of those moments that you're just so profoundly humbled um, of the simplicity of it and the importance of it at the same time. And I asked her if she would, I said, well, will you share that with us? And she walked up to the tree and picked up the chalkboard and wrote her name, which is four letters. Her name is Annette. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting um, cry here. It was, it was just course. the most human moment because she was so incredibly proud of herself yeah. and felt empowered and felt like she had a voice, right? Um, and it was just, you know, there were many other lovely moments in that, in that circle and in the conversation, but. You should be, you should be. It may, does that story help um, justify those long? She also, Gina, she had this really funny story. She was talking about when she first got there and I'm going to steal your thunder here just for a minute, Karen. And she went into this Jeep and where she was going in the middle of nowhere again, still in the space of like. What, what am I doing? And you, Karen, you were saying like, there were no roads. You were like being thrown around inside the Jeep or the vehicle. Oh, I tried like seven times on the way there. And, and I was like, I'm not going to make it. Like, I'm not going to make this trip. And the roads have gotten so much better. Um, and so now it's not as bad, but you know, it was like six hours of major off-roading in a minivan. I mean, you're just like, what is happening? I mean, you know, just huge holes in the ground yeah. that are like small apartments. It was just, uh, it was insane. Um, you know, not to mention just, you know, no bathrooms, no, you know, not a lot of food options, just like not really totally understanding like the whole, the gig yet. Um, but again, the first time we got to Gulu, finally, after all this time, I was such a disaster. And I get out of the car and this woman runs across the street, picks me up and spins me around. And her name is Grace. And she's still in our program. And I actually just had the, I just got to sit with her daughter, Sheila, who was a toddler at the time. And she said, Thank you, because now I can feed my daughter lunch every day, and she's HIV positive, and nutrition's really important. I mean, you know, she was in our pilot project. We hadn't, we had just started this, and I, you know, on days where I want to throw in the towel, which, wow, have been many, I can't because of stories like that. Like, I, I know how hard these women work every day just to give themselves and their children a brighter future. Uh, and so I just have to work harder, <laughs> you know. In the beginning, uh, and is this still true that most of the women were coming out of um, in, like camp sites or like displacement camps? Yeah. So when we went in in 2007, it was at the end of, well, I actually went there in 2008 for the first time. It was just coming out of a 25 year civil insurgency where over 30,000 children were abducted and turned into child soldiers. So as they grew up, you know, they, they came back 
from the bush. Like many of them were young girls when they were abducted. Many of them are in our program. So when I first started, this was such a tender, vulnerable region. And and many of the women I, I met with were... Um, you know, had been in the bush for like 10 years and they had been sex slaves and you can't imagine the stories. And they came back with several children and they were ostracized again because people were fearful of them. Um, and then if they, if you weren't, you know, there, so there were the abducted, um, women that, that were in our program, but everyone in that region had been living in these IDP camps, these internally displaced persons camps. So if you're in your country and you're displaced, you're an IDP. If you're out of your country, you're a refugee. So they had been in these camps for well over a decade. And I, oh, I'm sure. the camps, some wow. of the camps were still there when I started working there. And they were places that you wouldn't want to stay for five minutes, let alone. So they weren't safe. They, uh, there was no consistent school, education, jobs. It was just languishing and it was, you were hungry all the time. I mean, it, it was just, uh, horrifying to learn about this. It was kind of, and it was invisible to yeah. the rest of the world. And I've had many women say to me over the years, like, where were you? You know, why did no one help us? Like, where was the world? Um, you know, I don't have a good answer for them. That's great. And th- and then another part of this too, which you you touched on the agricultural loans loan program and how that plays a role. Will you help us? And off the same in the same space. Mm-hmm. And this baffled me too. It's just, again, it's that ignorant space. Um, I can't claim anything less than that or anything more than that. But the access or the lack of access to the justice system. Yeah, I mean, really globally, there are obstacles that are specifically geared towards women in accessing justice, whether it's not being taken serious, whether there's not uh, trained officers or, uh, you know, personnel to handle certain kinds of sensitive cases, um, whether it's money. Uh, but when you work in a post-conflict region and an under-resourced community, you know, like where I work, it's... You can't get to the city center because you don't have transportation money. You can't make copies of the documents they are requiring. You know, um, you're dismissed as a woman, uh, you know, and it's and there's a stigma around it. Right. So oftentimes women just can't don't have access to justice or legal redress in very serious cases. I mean, you know, violence, rape. Uh, um, property disputes, child custody disputes, very patriarchal um, in many, many ways. And those things are changing. Those dynamics are changing, but only because women are learning about their rights and only because, uh, you know, the access to justice I do want to mention like a couple of things. The Access to Justice Initiative is truly amazing. And it's staffed by women in our program who want leadership opportunities. And they go through trainings. They're so highly uh, thought of in the community now. They're invited to national trainings. They're recognized as a team and an organization. Um, so we have a toll-free hotline. We have uh, women that will go with women to the police department or, you know, wherever they need to go to file. We provide small fees for them to pay. We provide copying services. 
we will take care of your children. We will make sure you get the medical care you need. And I mean, there are some really horrific stories that I'm not going to go into, but That's where great. women are victims of violence and, and, you know, the perpetrator is not held accountable and we're changing that. Right. And, and also we're, we're helping to take care of their family while they're healing. And that's another that's awesome. piece of it that's really amazing. Um, and then we had 25 women run for political office in January 2021 this year. I mean, and, and there, so there's been three national elections since we started. And I was shocked that 12 women ran for political office in 2011. I was wow. like, these women are so badass uh, to have the courage, right? Many of them had never voted before. Ever. So, so they had the courage to run. And, you know, we have a leadership development thread in, through our entire program. That one of the things when I said, when I started this was women have to have a seat at the table. That has to be a part of this project. And it is really turned out in such an amazing and beautiful way. So we just had 25 women run for political office. 21 of them won. Wow. That's awesome. That's, that's amazing. That's a big number. That's a big number. And it's like inspiring. And it just, uh, you know, it's just really, really amazing to watch, uh, yeah. you know, women thrive and soar and, be courageous and brave and then take charge. I mean, you know, and when you ask why they run, I mean, they have very important and meaningful reasons for running. And it's always about moving women forward, making sure their voices are amplified, making sure that the the, the challenges women face are on the table. And it make you know, that is how you change things, you know? Karen, did you, did you I have a question. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're um, reliving like a part of history? Like, you know what I mean? Like in our country, because we're so we're a little bit older and women were able to get a voice, you know, back in the 1900s. And because of all the women moving us forward and continue to move us forward, you're at the rawest form of re-socializing women into like different roles yeah. that are not just based on gender, but based on their intelligence and their levels to run government and stuff. And I feel like you're almost, you know, re I'm listening to you and listening to you and I'm just thinking, wow, you're in like the space that you can make such a difference in the way that women and the generations that are going to come very fast behind their mothers so much to make, to make such a huge difference. And I, I, first of all, commend you, but, it's it's such a powerful role that you're playing, right? It's almost like when you said you can't stop. How do how do you bring on the next person to make it be even more so? Like not only is it just in their country, but how do you make their neighboring states of Africa or make it like how I know that Africa's focus is to become one Africa, right? Like that's like a thing is to unite Africa. Yeah, I think there's a uh, because Africa was partitioned into so many yeah. different states kind of the divide and conquer kind of thing. But no, each, you know, each country is so unique. And I think that they, they revel in that. Um, they want better trading. They want, you know, there's certain things they want as an African union, but um, I, you know, I don't live in that space of that. I'm creating history or that because I can't, I just, I can't live in that. I kind of feel like I'm really lucky to do this work and I take what I know and I share it. 
Like I just, you know, I take my experiences, I take what I've been able to do and understand, and I put it on a table and I say, how can I help you? You know, here's what I know. Here's what I can do. Let's make something happen. And I kind of work in that space. Um, I feel like I do know that the, the generations and uh, the next generation of women coming behind the women in our program are going to continue this. Absolutely. And I see it um, watching, you know, these little girls watch their moms be really successful at business. When I attend the literacy trainings, there are kids there because we, we have childcare. They're watching their moms learn to read. You know, those are, that's where those, that's where the light bulbs go off, right? And we're also working on, um, we have a healthy periods initiative, which is focused on keeping girls in school longer. If you talk to 12, 13 year old girls, which I do often, uh, in Uganda, in these, re they want to be judges. They want to be teachers. They already know, right? They know that there's more out there. They know that they can do things. They just need that opportunity to stay in school. Um, and, uh, and be respected. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's hard. I mean, I'm, you know, this is definitely a hard journey, but, um, I try not to live in my story. I try and live in the community story. Right. I don't know if that makes sense or answers. It your does. Question. No, it does. Yeah. I'm inspired by you. I, I'm usually not quiet on the show. And I'm just like thinking and thinking and thinking. And I'm like, you know, you know, I have two little girls. I always think about them, all my decisions and everything that we do. And um, I can't imagine being those mothers at all, like at all, like how to not have basics. So I, I yeah. guess like my next thing is, you know, how do we make it so that more people, you know, hear your, your story here? How do we get more businesses supported? How do, you know, what, yeah. what can we do to make it better? You know, to be honest, I mean, I would hope when people listen to this, that they want to join this, that they want to help in some way. And what, and, you know, I hope you go to our website and it would be great if you could contribute whatever you can. I can't do this on my own. And that was a revelation that was very hard for me. Um, several years ago that, uh, you know, I am, I, I am not big enough. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I am not well connected or wealthy enough to do this on my own. And I need strong sisters and others that believe in this, that want to actually help me create sustainable empowerment, um, and help us grow this and help us provide opportunities for more schoolgirls and more women, um, that want to see this uh, beautiful thing expand. Um, and yeah, so I would hope that everybody would go to our website and see, be inspired for a minute and um, help us out. Definitely. Well, you, you've done, you say you're not in many things, but the truth of the matter is your organization <laughs> has been recognized quite a bit. A lot. I mean, you are, you are, you have done an amazing thing and grown it on uh, to this point. And I totally understand that always need help. And the, the best of us always reach out when we need that. But um, Gina, this woman's hung out with the, she hangs out with popes. Pope Francis, I love him. No, the one before that, that wasn't that. 
Um, oh, and I'm obsessed with Pope Francis. Me too. Yeah, had it been that one, I I put. But it was interesting to be invited to Vatican Family Week and make a speech. And but I will tell you that everyone in my world when I was going was like, "Don't say anything sassy. Don't start off and don't <laughs> don't be provocative. Don't mention reproductive health care." And I was like, they thought for sure I was going to end up in the Vatican jail in some way or something. <laughs> but think of the story you could tell then. <laughs> I know, right? I have a lot of stories. I'm going to leave jail, the jail part of it, out of it. But that was a really big week for sure. Karen, I think if anybody on this show ever needed a drink, I think it's you. So we're, so we're going we're gonna to make a drink now. Are we, are we making an old Cuban? We are. I, that I, they said that. What's your favorite drink? I said an old Cuban, and I looked at the. I was like, I think that's what we're making. I'm very yes, excited. Yes, we have not made one on the show, and I thought it'd be super fun to make one. So yes. we're gonna we're gonna do it. So you're gonna go to your kitchen, and you're gonna stay with me, and I'm gonna make it. It's up to you. Yeah. I'm going to my kitchen. All right. Go to my Let's, kitchen, she's, and I've got everything ready to go. Um, I love it. And this, I was very looking forward to this for sure. I really want to know how to make one. To be honest, I was like, this is great. I'm going to walk away with a new skill and new friends and hopefully new supporters. And it's going to be awesome. All right, I'm here. I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. So first you go to your oven. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. So an old Cuban <laughs> is a really fun cocktail. And it's like something that I enjoy making. Um, we're gonna do a new product. Okay. It's not new, new, but it's it's really delicious. It's from um, Hamilton uh, Rum, and it's a limited release of the blonde rum. So it's Jamaican pot still, but a blonde. They call it a blonde rum. So if you get it in um, your market, I would totally pick it up. Uh, Ed Hamilton's the rum minister of. Um, he does the mm -hmm. rum ministry, and it's just a delicious, fun aged product. So. But if you, you can't get your hands on that, Gina, you're using a... So you're going to use an aged, an aged rum. Any aged rum, um, something in the three, five-year mark. Nothing too old or like 15 years. You don't want too much barrel aging on it. Um, it works really well. So we're going to put one and a half ounces in our shaker tin. And then we're going to do um, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice or about half of a lime. And we're going to squeeze that in. And then we're gonna take, you know, I don't know, two sprigs of mint or eight mint leaves, however you wanna count them, and you're gonna throw them into your shaker tin as well. And then we're gonna put in our simple syrup. And simple syrup is subjective in this cocktail. People, if you like your drinks a little bit sweeter, add an ounce. If you like them a little bit drier, do half an ounce. It's kind of really up to you. And then another thing about this cocktail, which is interesting, is when do you put the bitters in? Some people like to float it across the top. Some people like to mix it in the, um, the cocktail. I'm going to mix it in. You're going to just put two dashes. And this is a blitter, uh, bitters uh, blend that I actually made. It's not just Angostura. It has a little bit of um, citrus bitters in there. But Angostura bitters works wonderful in this drink. So we have all of our ingredients in there, and we're going to... Three quarters full of ice, and we're gonna shake. There we go. I almost put some chartreuse in there after we started talking about the folks. 
Oh, <laughs> put that in there. And now we're going to strain it. Now, if you have a double strainer, if you have a, a secondary mesh strainer, you know, you can go ahead and use that and double strain your cocktail. If you don't, that's fine. You just don't want to get the mint leaves in your drink. And you have this beautiful pink cocktail. And then you, so you have your, your pink cocktail. And now you're going to add about an ounce, about two to three ounces of champagne. You want something nice and dry, like a nice brute. Um, so it kind of evens out the cocktail. And when you make this drink, um, you could do one of two things. You could put a ploosh of mint, which is kind of, it looks really pretty, you know. But if you're going to just have it at home, I would take a single leaf, give it a little love tap, and put it on the top of your cocktail. And that is it. And that is an old Cuban. Yay! Thank you. I love this cocktail. I'm so happy to make it. And I finally broke out my glasses, so I'm totally <laughs> into it. So cheers. Such a lovely cocktail. So one thing to remember when you're making this cocktail and you're making this for yourself at home, don't skimp on the rum. Don't skimp on the champagne because these two things that you put in there are the main focus of the drink and they make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. When they are delicious products, right? So I use a little Moet. That might be a little over the top, but Something nice and dry. Yeah, I didn't I didn't break and open the Dom for this one, but you know. I mean, it's 2021. Why not? Right? If we learn nothing from 2020, why not? <laughs> um, all right. It's time to do our bartending, our barkeeping, Gina. Where are they gonna go to get this recipe? So you're gonna go to designateddrinker.show to get all of our tips and tricks and how-tos and the recipe for the old Cuban, as well as a link to Karen's charity, Louise. What's the name? We, you're going to go. We're going to have everything there, so that we, right, right to the um, to do, donations, and of course, you can also dig around in her website, which is Women's Global Empowerment Fund. We'll have hot links to that, not only on uh, designateddrinker.show, but also in your episode notes. So if you're listening to this on your um, smartphone, which most of us are, you just scroll up, and there'll there'll be links right there. You won't even have to look for it. Perfect. So I get a question now. Because, you know, after you drink this uh, old Cuban, you, you know, typing is a whole other story. So basically the old Cuban makes you one hot mama. So do I get to ask <laughs> my question now, Louise? It's time. It's time. Yes. Do it. Do it already. Good Lord. All right. Karen, I feel like you're going to love this question. So, you know, in this day and age, everybody identifies themselves with some sort of spirit, spirit animal or beast or you know, mythical creature of some sort, um, you know, or a magnificent, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I think of, after listening to everything that you've said, for some reason, um, the Egyptian beetle keeps coming to mind for you. And like, it's so cool because like, that's like, it's all about life and it's the longest living creature on earth. And it has done amazing things and stood the test of time. And I feel like what you're building is like really like that. But that's not my question for you. My question is, if you could identify yourself as one ingredient, whether it be in a cocktail ingredient or a food ingredient, what would it be and why? Oh, God, you guys. Um, I'm going to say cinnamon. Oh, perfect. Flavorful and warm and kind of universal. And you can put it in a lot of different things. 
Absolutely. A little sweet, a little savory. Yeah. And you put it with your sugar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good one, Gina. Oh, that was great. God. Cinnamon and sugar. Oh, good Lord. Karen, you set that one up and Gina just knocked it down. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that sharp, but I am drinking. So in it from a beautiful glass, nonetheless. Well, Louise. All right. Ladies, thank you so much. Here's to all the badass women in the world. And uh, shall we all just go out and change the world for the better? Cheers. Yes, Liz. Thank you so much for giving me the space and the time to talk about it. Absolutely. Come back anytime. Please. Cheers, ladies. Please. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers, Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Links League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.